Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 366 of the podcast. We are doing a video episode again today. So if you're listening and you would prefer to go watch the video, um, you can go to leanblog.org slash 366. And even if you're listening, I'll invite you to go to that webpage after the episode because we're going to have a lot of links and information to share. Thanks to our guest today. He is Harry Moser from the Reshoring Initiative. How are you, Harry? I'm great, Mark. Thank you. It's, a, it's, it's an honor to be here. Look forward to our time together. Yeah, well, I'm glad we could do this. Um, I'm trying to remember which conference it was. I, I know I've seen you speak before and been familiar with your work, so I'll put you in the category of people where I'm like, I don't know why it took me so long to invite you uh, to do this. So um, thank you. Well, I, here's a good reason. I, I'm better now than I was before. Better at, at talking about these things. Better, better. I, I have a lot more good information. I got better material for your listeners. So it's, you, you, saved, you saved it for the right time. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. So um, you know, just kind of help tee up the topic here. You know, listeners might be familiar with the term offshoring. So I was wondering if you could introduce what reshoring is and, and how some of these different terms, um, outsourcing, offshoring, and now reshoring, how those terms fit together. Okay. Well, one of those is very easy. Outsourcing classically means to have the work done by another company, no matter where the other company is located. Uh, GM outsources to tier two, tier three, you know, whatever suppliers. Um, that, that's outsourcing is easy. Offshoring is to have the work done in another country and then ship back to the U.S. So, so we always look at it as, as product or concerning product that will be sold or used in the United States. So, so at one time it was made here. Now it's made somewhere else. If it comes back to the to be made once again in the U.S. for the U.S., it's been reshored. Mm-hmm. Okay, if it comes back and part way, should we say? And let's say it was made in China or India, and it comes back and it's made in Mexico or Canada, then we'd call that nearshored because it got to a nearshore rather than to be the shore or reshored. Yeah, and and, and we see we see cases where each is is the right choice. Obviously, we'd like to see a lot of reshoring, and and we have had a lot. Mm-hmm. But there is there is work that is so labor intense. No matter how well you automate it, no matter how lean you get, no matter the best that the best that you or I could do, where U.S. labor rates are just too high. Mm-hmm. And then if you can get it to Mexico, for example, where the labor rates are about the same as China's and it's right close to us, from a from an economic perspective, from a lean perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And for the United States, product that comes out of China is about 5% U.S. content and product coming out of Mexico is about 40% U.S. content. Mm-hmm. So if I can't get the whole loaf back here, I'll settle for the 40% loaf in Mexico. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm curious, of, you know, there, there, there's some history of, you know, I guess, decisions that companies and industries have made over time um, that led to you starting your organization, um, the Reshoring Initiative. So maybe let me ask it this way, and I'm, I'm sure um, your, your story and the Reshoring Initiative story um, enter into this. 
When, when did offshoring um, really start accelerating and why did a lot of companies start making that decision to move production from the U.S. or other countries to China or another low labor cost country? Okay. Uh, taking a longer term perspective, after the Second World War, the U.S. was the dominant manufacturer. I think we, we had 50% of the world's manufacturing was here because the other major industrial countries were bombed to bombed to pieces, and therefore we were supplying almost everything they consumed. And so in the US, the, the late 40s, the early 50s, US had was dominant. And then and we had a huge trade surplus. Gradually that trade surplus came down until about 1979, roughly, when it turned negative. Mm-hmm. And we've had a, a trade deficit every year since. And it was a combination of perhaps first Japan. At uh, some point there, Mexico, uh, Taiwan, Korea, and eventually China. And so, and all the others were significant. There were times when it looked like Japan was going to make everything for the world, you know, but, but it didn't. And, but then finally, China was admitted to the uh, WTO, and, and the duties came way down on the Chinese products, and they were supposed to open up to our products and services. And and what, what, as soon as that happened, the the rate of growth of the deficit accelerated, mm-hmm. and and so it went such that by the last couple of years, the deficit has consistently been about eight hundred billion. That's where it be eight hundred billion dollars per year. The goods deficit, and that represents about five million manufacturing jobs at current levels of U.S. productivity. So it's, it's, it's a big number. Mm-hmm. Um, qu- quick question when you talk about um, you know, uh, what was happening in Japan versus China. When I went to go um, to, to grad school to a manufacturing focus program in 1997, the, 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 the call to action then was um, trying to increase American competitiveness compared to Japan and other countries. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in a lot of cases, Japan, whether it's cars or electronics or watches or other products, you had companies entering the market and exporting to the U.S., whereas with China, it was more the case than in like the early 2000s of uh, American companies or global companies moving production to China. Is that a, a, a fair generalization or what do you think? I think I think your characteristic characterization of Japan is quite correct. We, we, Toyota and uh, uh, all of the good, like Panasonic, all those mm-hmm. did a great job Tony on their own. You know, yeah. pro- probably at first they were, maybe they had, they were a licensee of a U.S. company and made stuff for, for U.S. And then pretty quickly they did their own and did a, did a wonderful mm-hmm. job, developed a lot of the lean principles, mm-hmm. showed us how it could be done, how it should be done. So they did, they very, very much earned it. Um, yeah. In the case of China, um, it's a it's it's a mix. Uh, the, certainly, U.S. companies have gone over there, but mm-hmm. but until very recently, you couldn't own your own factory 100. percent It's like 50 50 with a with a Chinese partner, and so there's a lot of that hybrid you know 50 50 mm-hmm. stuff going on, and and then also the Chinese have done a, a wonderful job of setting up job shops, contract manufacturers, and and they're good at just say being a foundry and then they're good at machining the casting and 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 sometimes the same company will take the that machine casting and build a refrigerator for you 
<laughs> you know, so, so, so they can go from the, you know, the most, most elemental contract manufacturing to the most integrated, which is essentially the same as a branded product company in the United States. And so a lot of U.S. companies have given almost the entire project to them, the design, the manufacture, you know, the packaging, you know, probably do some marketing for them for all I know. And, and, uh, and, and, that, and that's bad, I'd say, because the U.S. companies have had from, been taught by the MBAs, you know, for the last you know, 20 years maybe, to pick their core competence. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be finance, marketing, uh, strategy, you know, maybe a few other things, but typically not manufacturing. They say, ah, we can get that done cheap in China or somewhere. You know, so, so, so I run into companies, they come to me and say, Harry, we th- we're thinking about reshoring. Uh, I say, great. And they say, we've got one problem, though. We don't know how to make our products anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how are we going to do this? Given that right. they, they know how to make them. We don't know how to make them. <laughs> So, um, you know, before you know, talking about reshoring, I mean, can you talk a little bit more about what what led to acceleration of of offshoring? Um, was was there too much of a focus on uh, cheap labor? Um, I mean, you do bring up the nuance of some uh, products are incredibly labor intensive. Was it really kind of chasing the cheapest unit production cost without looking at the the broader broader picture? Yeah, I think you essentially captured it there. Um, the the biggest factor in offshoring, in the sense of making it there and shipping it back to here, was the search of the the lowest labor cost per hour mm-hmm. by reasonably competent, diligent workers, which the Chinese mm-hmm. certainly turned out to be, mm-hmm. uh, and and the Mexicans and the Japanese and the Koreans, and they've all been very diligent, hardworking, and. And so the, the, finding that ch- cheapest place they could get an acceptable quality done and shipping it back. Now, with the Chinese market, especially when a typical U.S. branded product company went there, they justified it by a combination of what they could ship back here and maybe cut their manufacturing costs by 10 or 15 percent, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but also because they could then start to sell into the 1.3 billion, right. it would be billion. Chinese consumer market, which, as they experienced over the last 20 years, has grown at the economy, has grown at, you know, 10, 15, 10, 12% per year, much, you know, four times, five times the rate of most of the developed world. So if you weren't over there selling, you were missing out. And as long as you were over there making to sell there, you might as well make it and ship it back here. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So when you talk about entry in the World Trade Organization, they were supposed to open their borders for for imports. And it sounds like some of that didn't really play out that way, where to to gain entry, what you're saying is to gain entry to the market, you've got to come in, you've got to produce in China, then you're partnering and and there's intellectual property that's transferred, technology that's transferred. Yeah. Uh, And and we, we haven't held their feet to the fire. Trump obviously is starting to do that. And and it seems like the Democrats more or less agree with his objective, even if not necessarily with his technique or style of doing it. And uh, and so my guess is that emphasis, that you know, pressure on China will continue. But but the the Chinese clearly, everybody agrees, China did not live up to its commitments. They they um, people talk about, and I, I'm going to patent this phrase. People talk about 
uh, opening China up to the world? And I'd say, no, we opened the world up to China. Mm. We gave them the opportunity to come in and take, 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 take the business, take the money, take the technology, et cetera. So then what, what prompted you, I'm curious to learn more about your background then of, of where this became an important issue for you and the timing and the story behind starting the reshoring initiative. I know you've been around for a okay. while. I don't remember how long exactly. Well, the, the personal story, I, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is right across the river from New York City. And uh, my ancestors founded Elizabeth, you know, 1660, all this kind of stuff. And the biggest thing in town was Singer Sewing Machine. Mm. The factory there in its day, let's say 1910, was the largest factory in the world. They had 5,000 workers at that time. It was 2.6 million square feet. It, it, was, it, was, it was tremendous. And my, my grandfather was a foreman. My dad ran a third of the factory. I worked there summers, high school and college. And I drove past 20 years ago. And there's nothing left. Not, as far as I can tell, nothing of Singer is made in the U.S. It's all made somewhere offshore. Mm-hmm. And then during my career, I sold CNC machine tools, foundry equipment, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and I ran into industry after industry that I was in or that I wanted to sell to. And the industry wasn't there anymore. The people who yeah. made uh, textile machinery and they made uh, shoe making machinery and they made you know, all kinds of uh, the foundry equipment makers themselves, the, the machine tool, large, largely gone and replaced by imports. And so I, when I passed that Singer factory, I cried then because I said, damn, my family's legacy in this, the city depends on it, the state, the country, and it's all gone. So I, I started the Reshoring Initiative. Yeah. And, and, and what year was that when you, when you started? Uh, 2010. 2010. 10 years ago. We're having an anniversary here. Yeah. Um, well, and let me tell a quick story. You mentioned New Jersey and sewing. Um, I'm gonna, I'll send you a link, Harry. Um, listeners and viewers, um, if they're regular viewers, we know in episode 364 very recently, I interviewed uh, Mitch Kahn, who is the president of a company called Unionware in Newark. Are you familiar with them, Harry? Good friend of mine. Uh, he, I visited his factory uh, five, eight months ago, oh, wow. and, okay. and, and I chose him as the uh, job shop uh, award winner of the National Sewn Products Reshoring Award. Okay, I know, okay. I know Mitch. Okay, well, good, well, good. Um, but you know, we 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 we've we talked a couple four years ago about what they were doing with Lean, and then we talked here recently because they're now you might know this making face shields and gowns. Their bill of materials for hats and backpacks and binders is exactly what they needed um, to make these products. But, you know, know, to talk about Mitch's business a little bit, you know, you you mentioned earlier about labor intensive products. uh, And if, if, you know, like to me, automation and lean are are two separate strategies. They might be used um, hand in hand. But can, you know, have you seen cases where, you, you can use lean methods to eliminate enough waste so that the value added work can be done in, in a way where the labor cost differential isn't as harmful. Is that one of the keys to successful reshoring or are there, are there other factors? Well, Mitch is as, as good an operator, as smart a businessman as I've met. Mm-hmm. He's, he's really clever, really hardworking. 
uh, I, I, his workers make, I think, minimum wage, something above minimum wage in, in the United States. So he, he pays at least at least fair for the industry. Um, and and so they're making, uh, you know, th- three th- three times or something like that. What a Chinese or a Mexican would make doing the same thing. And and I, I, I think I think he's he recognizes or has said that his costs and inevitably his price are moderately higher than the imported product, but he, 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 he makes a better product, you know, and, and he sells a made in the United States product. Well, I mean, I think he's got a dynamic where, where he said a lot of his customers want to buy American made slash union made products. And then there's some customers like the U S government that um, has requirements to purchase um, American. So, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's found himself a nice niche. It's and d- done very well. Nice, nice business. I mean, I, I'm very impressed at how well he's done. And, and, and I, I've been in his shop, like I said, I walked through, looks like people are treated well. It's a good environment. It's not a sweatshop, you know, like you might think of something like that. So, so I think it's been good for Mitch. It's been good for, for, for his, uh, his uh, stakeholders. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and the other thing I was going to say about sewing machines, they have a lot of their people now working at home and they would love to add more people. But he said, you cannot go anywhere right now and buy uh, a consumer sewing machine. That they're, they've, they're, they're all out of stock because I guess people snap them up to, to make masks and, and things. Uh-huh. At home. Okay. So that's the one constraint. Right and maybe now. he should find all those people when they've made enough masks and put them to work making hats. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he can find those people. But so I think Mitch's story, um, you know, was not direct reshoring. It, it was made. Well, you know, for, for us, reshoring is the manufacture of a product that previously had been made offshore or would have been made offshore. And oh, okay. so uh, to us, it's immaterial, whether you say that, that um, uh, Caterpillar, reshored its sourcing of hats you clearly they would have done it but when mitch is the one who gets to do it we still say he has reshored because he was part he he enabled that to happen without him caterpillar or whomever couldn't have reshored it so so we categorize uh, any anybody any company that picks up incremental work because to make product that otherwise would have been made offshore we say they uh, have reshored Okay. And, and there are some cases, um, maybe different category, or um, you, you can share other examples, please. But um, I, I, my, I, my understanding is that GE Appliances, which is now no longer part of General Electric, that they've reshored some production to Louisville, Kentucky, right? Are yeah. Well, this was about, about 10 years ago, actually. And, and they, were, they received huge amount of publicity. You know, great articles in The Atlantic and other places about this process and they they had been previously having their appliances made or at least a certain category of them made especially the water heater uh, by a, a chinese company who made the complete thing like one of these people you give them the job they do the whole thing and uh, G looked at it and said well we want to make them here again and so they 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 took they brought in product from imported put in a room had a war room brought in the design engineers, the marketing people, the manufacturing engineers, the workers, the foremen, the everybody, huh? and they mm-hmm. tore the things apart and put them back together smarter mm-hmm. so that the, the, the labor hours 
to make the product were dramatically reduced. First thing, right. the efficiency, the thermal efficiency of the product was improved and the warranty costs were reduced mm-hmm. because of doing it smart. So, so, so and, and I'm sure they automated it and they did whatever at the same time. So, so they did it the smart way. Uh, you might think of it as a design for manufacturability and assembly. Right. You know, coming up with a better a better way of doing it instead of copying what just what the Chinese had done and and, and it worked for them mm-hmm. yeah yeah so um are there other favorite examples of yours what what are some noteworthy examples of reshoring okay. now, my my overall favorite is a company called Mori Corp M O R E Y Corp they're located outside of Chicago and they they produce they're an EMS company so they produce uh, printed, uh, populated printed circuit boards mm-hmm. and related uh, electric, electronic electrical devices. And uh, I had done a little, little work with them in the past and they came to me uh, about four years ago. And Tony, the VP sales said, Harry, we're about to lose our biggest customer, our biggest U.S. customer to, to because a Chinese company has offered a significantly lower price. So Tony and I um, used the Reshoring Initiative's total cost of ownership estimator to calculate all the other costs that the customer had previously ignored. So not just that X-Works price, but the duty and the freight and the carrying cost of inventory and the travel costs, the intellectual property risk, the, mm-hmm. the risk of stocking out, like we've seen now with the coronavirus crisis, the risk of stocking out when you have a long supply chain instead of a short supply chain. And so uh, Tony took that into his customer and I've got a quote on our website saying that doing that analysis was key to saving a 60, that's six zero million dollar order. Mm. Okay. So yeah. that's my favorite case. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. I and, just wish I'd asked for a commission. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, we'll, we'll delve more into the total cost of ownership model, but, you know, I'm curious first, we were going to, you know, we're, we're, we're recording this, on April 16th and, you know, um, in the middle of the, the, the COVID-19 crisis. Why, why do you think this current crisis um, should be a wake-up call about where different goods are manufactured? Yeah. Well, it, everybody, you know, every night we hear President Trump, we hear the news media going on and on about lack of masks and gowns and ventilators and you know, everything else that they can think of. And, and justifiably, they don't have them. And, and of course, they blame the system. They blame the U.S. manufacturers. They blame President Trump. They blame you know, everybody for it. And, and in a sense, you could say they're right because we, we have failed. You know, we haven't done as good a job as we should. But when you look at the economic realities of the system, for example, with uh, there's a broad range of medical products, penicillin, antibiotics, masks, where something like 90% of our normal usage was important. So if you have a product, if you're, if you're used to using uh, X, you know, a certain amount of those, you know, a day, and you've been making 10% of X, now all of a sudden you need 15X. Right. And so you've got to go from 0.1X to 15X. You know, that, that's 150 times increase. And, right. and that's essentially not possible. To do in, any, in any practical situation, no, nobody has excess capacity. Yeah, yeah. the material, you know, the raw materials, material, the people, right. the machines, the yeah, everything. You can, you, you, can you do that in 
a year or two years? Well, if if you make the machines <laughs> that make the material and the machines that you know do everything, yeah, maybe you can. If you don't even do that, and then and then if the then so you're going along and you you know you're struggling. You got people at home making maps, you know, and and. And, but you still would like to be importing from China where you used to get them. And then the Chinese and other countries say, well, we need all our masks. We can't ship them to you. So now you don't even, you can't get that 95%. So you're screwed. You know? So, so everybody now see the people who've analyzed it at all understand what the problem is. And, and, and there's been several bills in Congress, one by a, a Senator Hawley of Missouri and one by uh, Senator Sullivan of Alaska, uh, both uh, asking the government to do something about that. Uh, subsudies, mandates, you know, something. And, and in fact, I talked to somebody from Hawley's office this morning about how we could help him. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm sure something will be done about that medical uh, lack of self-sufficiency. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but my, my intent is to help people make the leap the gap from medical things, which everybody was very sensitive to, to let's say it's not a health war, but it's a military war. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And, and we can't get the rare earth minerals to make the, the, the military products we need. We can't get the aluminum that we need. We can't get the, the electronic components that we need. That, then the arsenal dem- democracy is gone. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so my, my, my hope, my intent, and, I, and I'm seeing, seeing it, that people are, are able to make that leap from, from health to the rest of the economy. So, so one reason to have more of a manufacturing base here for certain products is really about mitigating risk. Mitigating risk, self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you're a farmer, you know, 200 years ago, if you're a farmer, you tried to grow almost everything you needed and hunt for the rest and maybe trade a little bit, you know, but when, if, if you do the economic analysis and compare our imports or exports or production or consumption in most consumer, consumer goods as a whole, excluding food, we import, we more than half of what we consume is imported mm-hmm. for, across the whole breadth of, of, of what we consume. More than half is imported. Yeah. And that's for, for the, biggest richest country in the world that's not a sustainable condition yeah um so then you know there's there's the risk factor but then even putting that aside things you've been working on in the past and may find more interested in the future there 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 can be this total cost argument that it's not you know you, you could look for certain products and say producing here is necessary or you know there are judgment calls about that. And then sometimes it really just comes down to business and, and looking at the numbers a little bit differently, which is seems, seems like something you're, uh, that's, that's the strength of yours and the reshoring initiative is you've already alluded to it. Maybe we can dive in deeper of, you know, how should companies look at that total cost? We'd say, since I know many of your listeners are lean, we would say they should look at it the way Deming looked at it. So Deming, in his fourth point uh, from uh, out of the crisis, said, stop buying on the basis of price, instead minimize total cost. Right. Uh, So he said that. Uh, Jim Womack, who's one of my neighbors up in Maine, 
says the same thing. John Shook has said the same thing. Most lean practitioners have said it. Most lean, let's say, experts have said it. You know, do the math. Do the math, you know. And, And yet most lean practitioners in their companies and consulting don't emphasize it. You know, they'll work on all the other methodologies of lean, mm-hmm. but the, the use of total cost for whatever reason yeah. ha, ha, has escaped them from implementing. So, so I, um, so, so therefore I'd say all of you who are lean, I'm calling on you to uh, go back to the Bible, <laughs> you know, yeah. re- remind yourself on what Deming wrote and, and implement. It, you know? So a quick, quick detour though, and I want to delve into the total cost, um, you know, more here, but one one thing that um, is is a pet peeve of mine, and it, you know, there, there are articles like this in the news all the time, going back fifteen years or more since I've been tracking this and blogging about it, and you see it recently now. People blaming uh, what they'll call just in time strategies, and sometimes they'll use the word lean for these shortages. When I think, you know, and these articles will equate, oh, just in time means low inventory. And so, well, wait a minute. Uh, just in time, I, I would I, I'd say it's, you couldn't call it just in time if you have a really long, slow supply chain because you've offshored everything to China. To me, that's not a lean model at all, and, and that wouldn't be expected to ju- uh, support uh, true just in time. So I, I get on my soapbox about that. I'm, I'm curious <laughs> what your thoughts are. You want to join me on the soapbox, or what do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I I certainly agree with you there. I mean that that company could be receiving product into its factory just in time, even though the product had spent a month and a half on the boat coming from from somewhere. So they could still perceive it as just in time. Uh, but but they, I like to think of it that the question isn't is it just in time, but the question is uh, f- from where did it come. <laughs> which is what you were talking about with the long right. supply chain. And when the when the supply chain is as long as most companies have them now, first they spend millions on complex data, big data systems to track and know where the stuff is and what's happening to it. You know? and, and then when there is a crisis, when there is a problem, when we have uh, coronavirus, when we have dock strikes, when we have Fukushima, when we have uh, I don't know, a volcano over in Iceland or wherever it was, you know, 10, 10, 15, something happens and now you can't get the stuff anymore. So I think you've, you've got a choice. Is your total risk, is your total probability of producing good product to tomorrow higher if you have a hundred supply chains stretching each one to a different major location in the, in the world, each one of which could have a disaster? Or a revolution, you know, or mm-hmm. something, you know. Or, or are you better off to have all of those supply chains stretching two miles into this country around your your assembly plant? And now there's only one probability of disaster. But if there is disaster, well, then your assembly plants got hit by the asteroid too, so it doesn't yeah. matter anymore. Yeah. So, so the total probability of producing has to be higher with shorter supply chains than with multiple supply chains going out all over the world. The only exception to that would be if if you if you if your quantities are enough to allow you to have multiple sources mm-hmm. of each component, 
Well, then then you might want to have a whole bunch of local ones and then still have some scattered around the world who are feeding into other factories at other locations, assembly plants at other locations around mm-hmm. the world and, and be able to call on those different factories if something yeah. happened to one of your local suppliers. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the Toyota model and, you know, people want to equate lean with just in time and China production, if you look at what, you know, when Toyota built their plant in San Antonio, Texas over 10 years ago, they have a lot of suppliers in an adjoining building, they, they made sure that they got other local companies as part of their supply base. So that to me seems like more of a lean practice if you're going to generalize than, uh, you know, try, uh, to, they're, they're not trying to import all of their parts from China into Texas. And it seems like one of the challenges beyond risk or a different type of risk with the long supply chain is when your demand changes. It seems like a, a, a long, slow supply chain can't be as responsive to changes in, in your needs, right? No, clearly, I mean, Deming was sort of talking or reporting the, you know, the Japanese uh, theory, the methodology. And, and if you look at uh, the Toyota production system, where they list the wastes, all, you know, the, the wastes that one, one is supposed to avoid, now I've, got, I've got a table mm-hmm. that, that shows how each of the wastes is made worse by offshoring. Hmm. So if you so therefore so why why does why does the average Toyota car assembled in the U.S. have a higher U.S. content than the average car assembled by the big three mm-hmm. because they understand the Toyota production system? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's let's I mean let's let's delve into the the total cost model and and for the listeners we'll we'll try to talk through it. But for those of you watching, um, Harry, you've got. Is this a good point to bring up some of the slides that you have to help illustrate some of these concepts? Okay. The, uh, so the to- total cost of ownership is, is a concept. You know, De- Deming talked about it. People have talked about it from, from, for various purposes. But in, in supply chain, it's a well-accepted, well, well, let's say well-documented, <laughs> but not, not sufficiently utilized methodology. Right. And uh, and basically, it, it again it starts with uh, X works price, which in our surveys or surveys show that sixty to seventy percent of companies make their decision based on price. Where can I buy it cheapest? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe some at landed cost. You know. Wait, and what do you mean by landed cost? I'm sorry. Uh, the the X works price plus duty and freight. Okay. You know, some some might go to that, but to that we would add. Uh, Carrying cost of inventory and travel cost and IP risk and opportunity cost and the value of a made in USA product and uh, you know the extra work in procurement when you have to do import instead of sourcing locally travel and all this stuff. So we we have about twenty nine different factors mm. and if you're doing uh, price or purchase price variance you have one. If you're doing landed cost you have three. We have twenty nine and those extra. Uh, 20, 20 or so add about 20% typically, but not, not always 20%. You know, sometimes it's 15, sometimes it's 35. And so instead of just saying the price in, in offshore has to be you know, 80% or less of the U.S. price, we say, do the math. And, and so we provide the, the free online uh, total cost of ownership estimator, which does the math for them. They go in, uh, they, they pick uh, a U.S. source, a, a foreign source. You could have like 20, 30 country, countries they can pick from. And then they answer questions for each source. You know, what's the quantity? What's the weight? 
uh, what's the price at each uh, frequency of delivery, what have you. And then the, the, the uh, algorithms go through and calculate the carrying cost of inventory and freight cost and all this other stuff to, to figure out what the numbers then comes down to a, a total cost for each. And then it, for, it plots, it breaks them down by hard versus sort of subjective costs. And then it, it plots them into, projects them into the future based on estimates of uh, wage changes and currency changes in each of the countries. So to make sure I heard you right, if a company was evaluating, let's say they're buying, looking to buy some component that would cost $100 to make in a local U.S. supplier, if the China price is, um, wait, what did I say? Did I say $100? You said 100 in the U.S. 100 in the U.S. If it's $80 or more coming from China, the estimator would probably say, you know what, it's on par or it's, it's in effect total cost cheaper to use the local supplier. Yes, but but if it's a if it's a a huge item that has a lot of material cost and not much labor cost, but a heavy high freight cost, mm. then then that gap's going to be bigger. So so it's very dependent it on yeah. what that you know that labor. So so one way we have of depicting that is uh, let's see if I can get to. Uh, share screen. Okay. If I can get to, okay, here. Uh, okay. Can you see that? It's coming up. It's a, okay. Yep. There it is. Okay. So here's, uh, this is a, people have come in and used our total cost of ownership estimator. We keep their, their data confidential, but we, we analyze it, we slice it and dice it. So this is from hundreds of cases of people who studied China versus the US. And the blue graph here is when they looked at price and the mode, you know, the high point here is maybe 72%. And when you shift to total cost, the mode is around 85%. And when you shift to total cost and you have a 15% Trump tariff in effect, the mode comes out to about 98%. So depending on which of these metrics you use and, and whether tariffs are in place, you, you get that big difference. You can see how the curves have shifted dramatically to the right. And 100% is, is where the, whatever the metric is, is where US equals China. So you might say you're indifferent as between the two, depending on which method you're using. But when you take that data and you... Uh, re-slice it, okay? So here's the same percentage of the U.S. And here's cumulative in the U.S. favor. So when the company looks only at price in 8% of the cases of, in 8% of the hundreds of cases that were analyzed, did the U.S. win? Uh-huh. When they looked at the uh, total cost in 32% of the cases, the U.S. won. And if there was a 15% tariff on in 46%, and I haven't actually done the math, but I think if you, if you, in addition to that last number, if you could take 10% out of your U.S. manufacturing cost and price based on lean, advanced mm-hmm. manufacturing, skilled workforce training, then that 46% would go up to 60% or more. So, so, wow. so, so the question is, you know, the simple thing, do the math and go from 8% to 32%, you know, right. then, 
find out if you've got a tariff on the product that you're bringing in and then start on if you still if you're still not there then then go for some lean some automation some skilled workforce some design for manufacturing some, something to to get the stuff over from the loser side to the <laughs> to the winner side over here yeah. okay wow okay and so then do you track you know people use the calculator you see what the calculator says do they then report back to you of what their decision ended up being i wonder i i have had those who have done so we don't we don't require it mm-hmm. and in fact when intentionally when people log in to use it we're asking them to put their company costs into the system mm-hmm. and so we so. guarantee anonymity we right. don't even ask their name or their right. company name because yeah. otherwise i believe they wouldn't put the real data in and then i i couldn't make an accurate chart here so so we uh but we we do have one especially i think interesting case to hubberton forge in vermont the, despite the name they make high end uh, lighting systems like fancy lamps and chandeliers for for nice homes mm-hmm. and and i've gotten to know them quite well they um the, steve it's either Uyghurs or Weigers, I think it's Uyghurs, um, is the supply chain guy. And and he's told me what they do. They, um, when the Chinese price is 50% or more, that's 50% or more of the U.S. They price, they do the analysis. And they've simplified our system. They've Of the 29 factors, they've said, oh, these, these 20 are going to be the same in all cases because it's the same factory in China and the same country and the same whatever. So they say that ah, that's worth whatever, 8%, 10%. And they only look at the these other five, six factors. And so now it's simple to do. And 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 when they've done it, it's it's made a significant difference in the amount of, in this case specifically aluminum die castings that they've imported from China and have shifted back to, to US production. Stop the, the 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 screen sharing, and for those who are listening, um, Harry, I assume uh, it'd be okay to post those two charts in the blog post for the episode. I'd love, love you to do so. You know, so, uh, leanblog.org/slash/three-six-six. So there's you know, th- this this use of the TCO model for making these uh, manufacturing location decisions and supply chain decisions, um, but the, the, there's there. What are some ways, um, you, I thought this was an interesting topic you had proposed. How can companies use TCO to increase sales? Okay. Sales is good, especially now when things are sort of a little dismal out there, for, unless you're Amazon or somebody like that. So um, say this, my work applies mainly to manufacturing. Okay. So if you've got a manufacturing company, someone who's listening and 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 you're, uh, you're, you're not the peak of the supply chain, you're somewhere down below. You're, you're, let's say you're a foundry, just for example. And um, you can come to work with us and define the kinds of castings that, at which you're most competitive. Gray, gray iron housings for the appliance industry, let's say, you know. And, and then uh, knowing that description and knowing an HS code, which is a, the import characteristic code for that kind of product, um, we go into a database that we subscribe to, and we can tell you who the largest 
importers are of those products, either in the country or within 500 miles, or you know whatever region you, you, is relevant to you. And so right now, when your foundry salesman calls on that on companies, they say, "Do you need castings next year?" And the customer says, "No, nah, we're okay. China, you know, everything's lower price." Instead, the salesman comes in and says, "I see you're bringing in a hundred tons of gray iron housings for appliances, and we've got a new molding machine in our foundry, and we're making products like that. Here's a sample." Uh, we've we've run the cost, labor is only 10% of our cost, so we can't very well be more than 10% higher, even if in China there's no charge for the labor. And we've done the TCO calculation, and there's about 20 points associated with all these other costs, so we think you're going to be 10% better off if you give us the work. And let's get together and do this for your company profitability, Mm -hmm. your uh, stability in the case we get another supply chain shock for the good of our state, for the good of uh, the country. Let's at least just, let's do the math. Let's, let's get together and, and see if this works for both of us. So, so yeah. we've got companies out there that are doing this with us now and we're helping them find new customers to sell to. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, I like that. Um, so uh, we have a question I wanted to ask. It was from our, uh, another mutual friend, Dan Markovitz, and Dan was the guest actually one episode ago. So how about this? Three episodes in a row. This was serendipity. Mitch Kahn, Dan Markovitz, and, and now you, Harry. Um, Dan's question was, uh, you know, is moving manufacturing or production back to the U.S. easier said than done sometimes when we, if we don't have the skills or the supply base here anymore? What are you, what, or what, what, and what, what can we do? What are some strategies to try to address that? Yeah. Well, in general, in general, we have the skills. To, let's say not in the quantity that China has, mm-hmm. and maybe on the average, not quite at the pinnacle of excellence that Germany has with their excellent apprenticeship programs. You know, uh, but we the the skills are still here. You know, maybe, maybe they're baby boomers, you know, ready to retire. But we we've got the skills here. Um, and and the skills are starting to come back. Now I know machining best because that's where I come out of. We we, we my company sold was it was Charmy, now called GF Machining Solutions. We sold EDM machines and high speed milling machines, uh, excellent products. And the uh, so I, I know that industry. I've been working on the uh, training in that industry for thirty years and. And the Trump administration has done the best job I've seen of any of them in focusing on apprentice programs. Mm-hmm. They've committed $200 million to accelerate your apprentice programs around the country. And I, I read all the time about companies starting apprenticeship programs, growing them, about community colleges having joint programs. Like my old company, Charmy, they, they have a program where they, they're doing apprentices for applications engineers and service engineers. So, so, yeah. so, so I see it happen. If you, if you had a scale, you'd say Germany used to be a 10 and we used to be a two, you know, maybe we're up to a three or a four and Germany's down to a nine because all their kids want to go to university and study philosophy, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like our kids. But, yeah. but at least, you know, we're moving in the right direction. Right? And, and, and another thing is as reshoring happens, you know, as people hear this message, now, as kids, people who are at home now listening, if they like the message, have their high school kids listen to it, 
and let the high school kid understand that manufacturing is coming back. And where where five years ago, the guidance counselor or the parent might have said, you'd be crazy to go into manufacturing. The, the, you know, the uncle lost his job, but the, everything shut down. Now, oh, the factories are coming back. The work's coming back from China. H- right. Half of the reshoring is from China. So, so, so j- just the success and the visibility of reshoring should be enough to motivate some kids to do that. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other question you asked was the supply chain. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, China didn't have a supply chain. Mm. And they built one. Mm-hmm. You know? like 20 years ago, we had everything. We made everything here. And, and there's some areas where it's lacking, but we have the technology and we have the money that we can do it. In fact, another service that we offer is called Supply Chain Gaps. So if you, one of your listeners, if they were interested, they could come to us and they could, they could say they're, they're really good at making a certain kind of widget. And we could tell them, other products that are similar to those widgets where there's say a hundred million dollars being imported and nobody's producing them in the U S and then that company could decide to horizontally expand its operations to produce the widgets that nobody's making here and be the only U S manufacturer in a pretty big industry. Yeah. Okay. So we have methods to overcome that supply chain problem. Um. As, as we wrap up here, um, what, what do you think? Um, you know, we'll we'll you know, start with the U.S. first. And I'm curious about um, what you know about similar efforts in other countries. But what, what do you think the U.S. government, federal, state level, can or should do to try to help accelerate reshoring? All right. Well, I'd say the, um, the there's something that the Commerce Department has on its website called the ACE, A-C-E, Assess Costs Everywhere Toolkit. And it includes a link to our TCO estimator, you know, on our website. And, right. and it hasn't, I don't think it's been worked on for the last eight years when I first helped them do it. And so I, they could update that. They, they could put my chart on it, for example. That, that would stimulate some people to do something. They could train their MEPs, Manufacturing Extension Partnerships, which are all over the country, to be more aggressive in, in doing this kind of thing. Uh, the pre- I think the president, I'd like to see President Trump call on companies and say, we've had this health care crisis. We have all kinds of medical products that were deficient. I, I want volunteer companies to make those products and we'll make sure you get enough money for them that you, you'll, you, you'll at least make a pro- some profit on them. And then as soon as we're out of this crisis, I want companies to start looking at the other areas where we're deficient mm-hmm. and we're going to provide you a list of those. And we'll, uh, if, if we have to, we'll put tariffs on those products for five years. You get a chance to get started and get going again. Mm-hmm. So, so if, you, if you have to do tariffs, I'm not, I'm not encouraging tariffs, but if you had to do tariffs, focus them on the products where you want to rebuild the supply chain in the United States and you want companies to reshore. And then, you know, I imagine there are efforts in other countries, um, similar to yours, I saw a headline earlier, just peruse the article that the, uh, the French finance minister had put out a call um, encouraging French companies to, um, you know, kind of rethink some of their sourcing productions to be able to be self-sufficient, which sounds similar to what you were saying. It's, it's more of a, a voluntary call than some invocation of the Defense Production Act. Was that um, a recent call? I, it was it was in the news today. I'll, uh, I'll send okay. you. Yeah, because there was a, a member of the French cabinet about ten years ago who did that, 
and and for some reason six months later he was gone <laughs> you know? so uh, uh, there, there have been um, the government of Netherlands uh, put up billions of dollars to help their companies reshore uh, in in the UK there's an office it's it's part of either BIS or BLS that that is a reshoring office and, and it's very proud of the fact that they've helped the auto assembly plants in the UK uh, get much more of the components in the UK instead instead of off from offshore so they had good success um, we, we, we've spoken in Holland and England and France and Switzerland on this subject so good interest mm-hmm. I get calls from and I've been interviewed by the Koreans and the Australians and you know, almost every country so every, everybody likes the idea you know the question is to is is to make it efficient, you know, to, to make it happen. And I mean, there may be some cases where Japan may be looking to reshore from China. It's not exactly. just about they, the distance. They right? put up, uh, I think, $2 billion uh, to subsidize their companies to bring manufacturing back from China. Now, $2 billion, can't get the whole thing done, but it's certainly a good start to, to, to do it. Um, well, another thing I'd like to mention just a little bit off that subject Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working very closely with AMT, Association for Manufacturing Technology, which puts on IMTS, the, the 130,000 person show at McCormick Place in September. Yeah. And they're going to have a big focus on, on reshoring, um, something like rebuilding the domestic supply chain, more or less what we're talking about. And, and we have a whole series of you know, webinars and podcasts and articles and things coming up to a a, uh, an exhibit with uh, uh, presentations, and you know, I, I, if I could, I'll get President Trump out to to, to help us. You know, yeah. and so, so anybody that's in that industry, I, I hope they'll come out. Now, there's also a a National Metalworking Reshoring Award, which you can apply for. You can find it on our website, and a National Sewn Products Reshoring Award that we do with with, with different trade associations. So. Now, we've got lots of opportunities for people to get, uh, we'd say, both more business and fame via reshoring. Yeah. Well, um, so here, I'm going to show you. I, w- I was uh, wrong. This is actually an article from February, late February, but I saw a reference to it in something today that I was reading in the news. Uh, France urges business to rethink supply chains as coronavirus hits Asia. Um, so, you know, it's going to call it a wake up call to French manufacturers. Now, that was maybe before the disease, we, people recognized the disease was spreading. This was more about, well, Chinese production is shut down and that creates problems. That's different than a pandemic yep. spreading. But. I understand. So, w- one more thing just to mention uh, many of your uh, listeners probably know AMA, Association for Manufacturing Excellence. Right. So, yeah. I'm working with uh, Kim Humphrey there, who's the, the leader. And Glenn Marshall, who's a good friend there, and and they are going to have a significant focus on uh, reshoring at the AME annual in Toronto this year in October. Okay. So that's another another chance for those of your viewers who are lean aficionados to to get more involved. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing about that. And then finally, um, Harry, your website, um, the reshoring initiative is reshorenow.org. Correct. Um, best place for people to go. I know there's a lot of information there. What else would you suggest? 
Uh, they're also welcome to, to, to email me. It's uh, you know, harry.moser at reshorenow.org. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you, know, you, you got a question, Harry, I'm trying the TCO estimator. I can't figure it out. Email me, call me, do whatever. You know, my, my job is, is to help you uh, achieve my mission to bring 5 million manufacturing jobs back to, back to the U S. Well, that's a great mission. Um, you know, as we wrap up, you know, you mentioned New Jersey, you know, I grew up, um, my mom, uh, and my, you know, was from Flint, Michigan. So in the eighties and nineties, we saw the impact of, um, manufacturing job loss there where my, uh, one set of grandparents lived. My dad's parents live in uh, Northeastern Ohio, where whenever we would go and visit, we would see down in the Valley, the, um, skeletal remains of what used to be a vibrant steel mill. Um, so I feel like, you know, we, we, there's kind of similar origins for, um, for me, it's an interest in this topic for you. It's a passion. So I appreciate that you're doing a lot um, on this front. So Harry, uh, Harry, thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for the opportunity. Great, great to talk to everybody out there. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad we do this. Um, again, our guest has been Harry Moser, the uh, reshoring, initiative. Um, Harry, maybe we'll get to do this again and it'll be even better than this time. We can tell them how much, how much we've all succeeded. (laughs) Look forward to that again. Thank thank you. you. Thank you very much, Harry. Thanks for listening. This has been the lean blog podcast for lean news and commentary updated daily. Visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.